Well, I have a confession to make as the senior pastor of this church that I know nothing about the Bible. And someone's already thinking, I told you we shouldn't come to this church. So before, before you freak out, okay, while I do have lots to learn about the Bible, uh, knowing nothing is actually not totally true, but that is how my wife Sabrina and I felt recently as we were on our trip to the Holy Land over the summer. And just so everyone is clear, the Holy Land is Israel, not Mile High Stadium in Denver. Just so we're clear. So we're clear, right? I know they played 11, so we got some Bronco fans in this service because you can't come to the 11 o'clock service because you'd miss the game. So I get it. If Oklahoma was playing, I'd do the same exact thing. So I'm with you. So as we walked where Jesus walked and stood where Jesus stood and saw what Jesus saw, it was a faith-changing, faith-challenging, faith-convicting experience for both of us. And I'm so excited to be sharing some of those things with you in this new sermon series we're starting today called Walk This Way. Way. If you're new here, my name is Jeff Manis. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church. I'm so glad that you and all of you are here with us today. And if you happen to be joining us on video today, whether you're in the building somewhere or online, uh, you're a part of our family wherever this video reaches you. And we're so thankful that you are uh, leveraging media uh, to join us today. My desire for all of us through this series is that we would each be inspired to take one more step in our faith. Even if you're here today and you don't believe in God, don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I hope that not only do you hear this, but I hope that you experience this today as well, that you are welcomed here and you are invited to be here whether you believe what we believe or not. I hope that you'll see that today. I, I loved, personally, just loved our tour of Israel. Absolutely loved it. For me, it was like the Bible came to life in a whole new way. In fact, when I got back from Israel, I wanted to reread the story of Jesus through that fresh lens of Israel. So I started at the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Matthew has 28 chapters. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So I started reading Matthew. Matthew's got 28 chapters. And out of those 28 chapters, there was not one chapter where I did not read something that we saw while we were in Israel. It was unbelievable how the gospel just came to life. So each week in this series, I'm going to start off by sharing something I thought was cool, uh, special to me, and then we'll dive into the, the passage of scripture that will serve as our main scripture for the day. So Sabrina and I, we arrived in Israel after more than 24 hours of travel uh, after midnight on our very first day. So the middle of the night, obviously we could not see any of the scenery or landscape. So I was anxious to get up in the morning and kind of see what Israel looked like for the very first time with my own eyes. So I woke up before the 6 a.m. wake up call rang in our room, made a fresh cup of coffee, walked out side and saw this, the Sea of Galilee in the morning. That's what I saw right out of my hotel room. We watched the sun rise over the hills of the Sea of Galilee, and I was totally geeking out. I started, I was saying to myself, what if Jesus stood right here and watched the sunrise? I don't know if he did, but it was, I was like freaking out. And so I looked at the hills, like those are the hills that Jesus would go to, to spend time alone with the Father. It blew me away, and I had been there for literally hours. I was already blown away. So then Sabrina and I, we had breakfast overlooking the Sea of Galilee which we were totally spoiled. Uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, actually, to, I, I, I was trying for a while to figure out why there was no bacon on the breakfast buffet. 
which seemed like a massive oversight to me. Because the food was great, there's no bacon. And then I realized, oh yeah, we're in Israel, Jewish people don't eat bacon. So uh, our tour guide was Jewish. And so I asked our tour guide if he ever had bacon and he had not. So he had been doing touring for 45 years. He was probably getting close to 70 years old, had never had bacon in his life. So I held him and we cried together. <laughs> God showed up and changed his heart, just kidding. So that first morning, Sabrina and I, we, we sat by the Sea of Galilee. We read the story of Jesus, uh, of the disciples being out on the sea, terrified by a storm. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water and says, take courage, I am here, don't be afraid. It was amazing. Got a picture of us sitting by, you can, everybody can say, aw, there's our feet by the, we didn't try walking on the water, I didn't, I didn't go that far, but. Uh, the, it was just that story came to life again in, in a whole new way. So we watched the sunrise, went out on the tour, got back that night to the same hotel, and we watched the sun set over the Sea of Galilee. Got some breathtaking pictures of the sun going down over the Sea of Galilee. It was absolutely incredible, just incredible. That was day one. That was the day one of an eight-day tour in Israel. So here, here's a picture I got here. Um, put that next one up if we can. There. Anybody know what that is? This is an animal feeding trough, otherwise called a what? A manger. That'll burst your Christmas paradigm for a second. So most likely mangers were not made out of wood. They are made out of stone because they would have lasted longer and dealt with the elements without having the, the, you know, the chemicals that we had today to treat and protect wood. And speaking of mangy, check this out. <laughs> How's that for a transition? There were stray cats Everywhere, like everywhere, no stray dogs, only stray cats. And this cat, I think, could sense my hatred and wouldn't even look at me to allow me to take this picture. And so I believe later on he ended up in this pita bread sandwich. <laughs> Just kidding. So each week I'll share a little bit with you uh, from the series and if you don't know, Pastor Andy is hosting a trip to Israel June 8th through 17th of next year. So 2018, June 8th through 17th, uh, Pastor Andy is going on a tour with the same company my wife and I uh, went with. It, it is life-changing. I believe it is worth every dollar that you can save and invest into that trip. Faith-wise, it's changed me, changed the way I've looked at the scripture. So there's, there's information out at the Next Steps wall, this little packet like this, and uh, registration is due. The first deposit is due on December 15th, I believe. Uh, you can ask questions uh, of Pastor Andy. If you have any questions on that, call or email the office. We'll get you your information. But if you want to go, uh, that's happening in June of this next year. So today, though, today I want to talk to you about faith, okay? Now, it's a big subject, right? So, so faith is obviously a massive subject in the Bible. It's, it's incredibly important. The book of, of Ephesians in the New Testament portion of the Bible tells us that we are saved by faith alone through God's grace alone. That by faith we receive forgiveness of sins. James and other writers of the New Testament, they tell us that true faith fills us with the power of God so that we can live for him. And the author of Hebrews tells us that faith is the confidence of what we hope for, the evidence of things we cannot see, so faith assures us of our future home in heaven. Now those are all true and all great things, amen? They are great things from scripture, but I believe there's more to faith than forgiveness of sins. 
There's more to faith than being filled with power to overcome sin. And there's more to faith than just being assured of my future home in heaven. That faith does, produ- uh, does provide those things, but it should also produce some other things within me. So here's the big idea for today. It's on the screens if you want to write it down. It's this. True faith will provide some things for me, but it should also produce some things in me. True faith provides those things we talked about, forgiveness, the filling of the spirit, the, the future home in heaven, it provides those. But it should also produce some things in me. So if true faith produces some things, here's the big question we have to ask today. What should true faith produce? What should true faith produce? The main scripture is Psalm 42, verses 1 through 11. And by the way, there's other things that faith can produce and should produce in us. In this passage here, we're going to see three things from the life of King David. Okay, so Psalm 42, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can. It's about halfway through the Bible. You'll get pretty close if you turn halfway. If you didn't bring a Bible, follow along on the screens. All of them are there. If you don't own one, as always, we'll give you a Bible. Ask for one at the Next Steps wall or guest services. The place we're looking at in Israel today is not a story specifically related to the life of Jesus, But I think out of all the places we went, it's where the Bible most came alive for me, okay? So it was on the third day of our tour. We had uh, gone to Jerusalem, stayed the night in Jerusalem. We drove from Galilee to Jerusalem, stayed the night. We drove southeast from Jerusalem toward the Dead Sea. If you don't know, the Dead Sea is literally in the middle of the desert, 1,300 feet below sea level, it is desolate, it is dry, and it is hot. So we got a picture of the desert, overlooking the desert, I think, from uh, a high atop a hill. We were a few miles away uh, from the Dead Sea is a place called En Gedi. Now, En Gedi is an oasis tucked away into the middle of a valley among the, the bluffs, the cliffs, the rocks of this desert. It's referred to several times in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And the Bible does not tell us who wrote Psalm 42, but it's widely accepted to be King David. And based on what he laments about in this psalm, it could have been written at the time where King David fled for his life from King Saul. So Saul was the king of Israel. He falsely believed that David was out to get him, and so he set out to kill him. David, in his flight from Saul, actually hid in caves in En Gedi. You can read about that in the Old Testament. If it wasn't that time, it could have also been written at the time that David was pursued by his own son, Absalom. So Saul dies. The uh, Israelite people, they... uh, crown David as their king, but David's son Absalom turns against him, overthrows David, takes the throne, then tries to kill David again. So David runs for his life into the Judean wilderness. So it could have been here in En Gedi as well that David fled to and, or at least wrote from this place or thought of this place you're going to see here in a second uh, when he wrote this Psalm 42. So David, nonetheless, was very familiar with this area. He would have walked through here, perhaps shepherded here. He hid in caves here, traveled through this place. In fact, our tour guide told us, if you want to see David's Psalms, this is one of those places in Gedi, okay? So we walk into En Gedi, Middle of a desert, hot, dry, we're all already thirsty, it's in the morning. It was 120 degrees the day we were at the Dead Sea in, in Gedi. They, and we start to see, as we walk in, we start to see the kind of trees and landscape 
that David talks about in the Psalms. We see caves up on the side of the hills, perhaps the same caves that David hid in while he was on the run from Saul or Absalom. And you might say those caves aren't very big. I said the same thing. So here's a close-up of one of the caves, definitely large enough for a human being to get inside. And our tour guide told us the caves would go back dozens, sometimes hundreds of feet into the wall of the cliff. We saw animals described in the Psalms. So we saw the hyrax or the rock badger. Uh, you'll read about them in the Psalms. We saw the ibex. Here's an ibex. It's translated deer in the English translation of the Bible. So if you see the word deer in the Old Testament, they don't have deer in this area of Israel. They have ibex. It's like a cross between an antelope and a mountain goat. And they would traverse the, the walls of these cliffs just at ease. It was absolutely Remarkable, And as we were walking through in Getty, we heard the trickling of a brook down below us. And then we come to this. There's no way for me to describe what we saw, what we heard, what we felt when we saw this waterfall, this oasis, literally in the middle of nowhere. Middle of the desert, this waterfall coming over the rocks, almost like it was coming out of the rock. It was the most clear, clean, refreshing waterfall I'd ever seen in my life. Here's a picture of Sabrina and I standing at the base of the waterfall. Look how clear the water is, how clean the water is. It was absolutely unbelievable. So with all that imagery in mind, okay, try to put yourself there as we read Psalm 42, starting in verse 1. As the deer, or the ibex, longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were alone out in that desert, chased by my enemies, literally dying of thirst, and I saw that water or I knew where that water was, I would want to dive in and drink and drink and drink. But do I feel that way about God? Whoo. David continues. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God, David said, as the ibex longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. True faith will provide some things for me, but it should also produce some things in me. So what should true faith produce? The first thing I see in David is this, and we need this as well. I do, a desperation for God. A desperation for God. Albert Barnes, the great theologian commentary on this passage says this, neither the idea of panting, which some translations say as the deer pants for water, neither the idea of panting nor braying seems to be in the original word. It is the idea of looking for, longing for, desiring that is expressed here. Then the treasuries of David commentary says this, 
Ease he did not seek, and honor he did not covet. But the enjoyment of communion with God was an urgent need for his soul. He didn't view it as just a luxury, but an absolute necessity, like water to a stag. Wow. As an animal needs water, so my soul needs God, is what David said. David's faith produced in him a desperation for his God. And church, this has been wrecking me ever since. Been wrecking me. Because I don't know about you, but I'm great at being desperate for God when I find myself in a desperate situation. A health need, a financial need, a job need, a relational need. And even then, let's just be honest, I'm not really desperate for God as much as I am desperate for him to do something for me. And that's where David and I are different. Because yes, I know David was on the run from his enemies, probably fearing for his own life in a desperate situation. But notice, David did not ask God to take his problem away. He just wanted to be in the presence of his God. Psalm 63, one through three, a very similar passage. David writes this, oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. In this parched and weary land where there is no water, I've seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. David's saying, I'd rather have you than even be alive. Man, how I praise you. Church, this has been so challenging to my faith. That it is, I, I have to ask myself questions like this. Is my faith making me desperate for God? Not desperate for God to do something for me but just desperate to be with God. Because I seem to be way more desperate for God to move on my behalf than I am to meet with him every day. Anybody else convicted in the room? Because I am. And this does not mean we should never ask God to do something for us. In a few weeks, we're gonna look at uh, the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're gonna see how it's okay to ask God to move on, on our behalf. But is my desperation for God even equal to my desperation for him to do something for me? Because the majority of my prayers are God do something, not God be with me. I long for your presence. All I know is this. Our life is filled with enemies taunting us, right? Not necessarily physical people, but you, you know this. In this life, we are attacked. We are attacked with temptation, with tragedy, with trouble. We find ourselves running in a spiritual desert, exhausted from the attack. And when David was experiencing that, he likened his faith to that of a fleeing deer. That as the fleeing deer 
longs for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. I thirst for him, the living God. David continues, Psalm 42, 6 through 8. Now I'm deeply discouraged. Okay, he's, if you've been discouraged, people in the Bible know how you feel. But I will remember you, God. Even from distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan from the land of Mizar, I hear the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. And this was like mind-blowing for me. The New Living Translation we are reading from right now uses the phrase raging seas. I looked up this passage in 10 other English translations, the most common ones. Eight out of the 10 uh, English translations use the word waterfall, not raging seas. In fact, in the original language, it would be the word water spout or water fall. And then I already knew this. This next thing I'm going to tell you I already knew about. But combined with the word waterfall, just again, the scripture came to life. There's only three waterfalls in all of En Gedi. And we were standing at the base of one of them. So quite literally, David could have been writing this psalm at the base of this waterfall or perhaps thinking about it or maybe watching from a cave to this waterfall saying, I hear the tumult of the waterfalls as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. Verse eight, but each day the Lord pours his unfailing love upon me, perhaps like standing under a waterfall. And through each night I sing his songs, praying to the God who gives me life. It's beautiful. True faith will provide some things for us, but it should also produce some things in us. What should true faith produce? Well, we saw already a desperation for God. Here's the second thing I see in King David, number two is this, a devotion to God. Devotion to God. Not just being desperate for him, but being devoted to him. David's devotion to God, this struck me, was not determined by how good his life was at the moment. His devotion to God was based on how good his God was all the time. And here's what that teaches me. True faith is not just devoted when times are good. True faith is devoted because God is good. David said, through each night, as he was perhaps hiding in the cave, running from his enemy, his throne had been taken, his son had abandoned him, his best friend's dad, Saul, trying to kill him. Through all those nights, I sing his songs, praying to the God who gives me life. He's telling us, my life is not determined by what happens to me or what I have while I'm alive. My life is determined by who is inside of me and what he did so I might have life forever. That's what David's saying. Like a waterfall each day, the Lord pours his unfailing love upon me and through each night I sing his songs praying to the God who gives me life. We sang about this earlier, by the way. Standing on your promises, how wide, how deep, how long is the love of God? Like a waterfall that washes over me every day. So I pray 
I sing through the night to the God who gives me life. I thought about this while I was working on this sermon. I referenced it a little bit earlier. But my default nature is to be desperate for God in bad times and devoted to him in the good. That I, I tell God my problems in the bad and I give him praise in the good. And to some extent, that's okay, right? We should tell God our problems. He wants us to when we have bad times. We should praise God for the good things he has done. But what I need to work on is being desperate for God in the good times and devoted to him in the bad. To be desperate for God when there's no problems in my life and praise him the same when I'm standing in the midst of them. That's what David had. And church, that's what I need. That's what I need. When I truly think, I mean, when I sit down and truly think of all that God has done for me, the fact that God, creator of heaven and earth, the maker of my soul, the savior of my heart, that that God wants to be with me, and yet I more often come to him only when I need something. Man, I want to be able to say like David, God, your unfailing love is better than life itself. And I'm telling you, church, I'm with you in needing to grow on this. I'm the, the number one person being convicted in the room right now is me. It's me. True faith. It, it, it provides things for us, but it should also produce some things in us. And for David, in the midst of literally his darkest hour, he was desperate for God, not for God to do something for him, but simply to be with his God. He was devoted to God. His devotion was not determined by how good his life was. It was determined by how good his God was. And the goodness of his God helped him overcome the badness of his situation. And then the third thing I see in this passage and from King David is this, a dependence upon God. He was desperate for God. He was devoted to God. He was dependent upon God. David concludes Psalm 42 with these words, verses 9 through 11. Oh God, my rock, I cry. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? And let me just stop for a moment. I wasn't planning on saying this. But if you have been sold a Christianity that says because you believe in God that you'll automatically feel better and your life will change, your circumstances will, you've been sold a false Christianity. Because you cannot read the scripture and see anyone who believed in God and their life was roses. It does not happen. But trust me, you put your faith in God and while your life may not be roses, your relationship to God will help you overcome life. So notice, David did not say, oh God, my rock, my problems are gone. Oh God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Ever been there? Why must I wander around in grief? You been there? Oppressed by my enemies? Been there? He says this, their taunts break my bones. 
They scoff, where is this God of yours? Let me tell you something, church. The world is looking to Christians and when bad things happen, they will say the same thing. Well, where is your God? And our response cannot be that our God will always change our circumstances. Our response has to be that our God changes our soul so that I face my circumstances with a different perspective. Because everyone, I'm going off track here, but I don't really care. Everyone in this life experiences tragedy. Everyone. Can you imagine how easy it would be for the church to evangelize the world if you could differentiate between the lives, what happens to Christians and what happens to non-Christians? Like if we could tell the world, hey, look at the Christians, nothing bad ever happens. Everyone would want to be a Christian. But that doesn't happen. So what do we have? We don't have our circumstances being different. We have our reaction being different. That we have a hope not based on this life alone. It's rooted in the next life. So that no matter what happens in this life, their taunts might break my bones. They might say, where is this God of yours? And our response should be this, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I put my hope in God. I will praise him again in the midst of my trouble, my savior and my God. That whole part was unplanned by me anyway. David said, oh God, my rock. And this is where the setting once again changed everything for me. Don't forget the setting from which David was most likely writing here. He was in the midst of the rocks. He hid among the rocks. He took shelter in the rocks. He found safety in the rocks, but that was not his true rock. Oh God, you are my rock. You are my fortress. You are my protection, not these rocks here. Oh, I might hide from Saul. I might hide from Absalom and these rocks, but my soul has been hidden in you. Then it's almost like he was saying, because of that, why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I'll praise him again, my Savior and my God. He is my rock. I depend upon him. Church, I too, like David, need to say, oh God, my rock. Not, oh bank account, my rock. Not, oh relationship, my rock. Not, oh house, oh job, oh car, oh retirement, oh political party, oh safety, oh comfort. But, oh God, my rock. Because listen, all other rocks let us down. They disappoint. So what am I depending on? My job? My home? My relationships? The fluctuation of my bank account? My retirement? You know what Jesus calls that? Sand. Because it's sand. It cannot be where we put our hope. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says the wise person builds his house on the what? The rock. 
right? Not Dwayne Johnson. Another rock. On the rock. And he says this, when the storms come, not if they come, when the storms come and when the flood waters rise and when the wind beats against the house, which by the way, is that not timely? The house stands firm because it's on the rock. But the foolish person, Jesus says, builds his house on the sand. And when the storms of life come, and when the floodwaters rise, and when the wind beats against the house, the house collapsed, for it did not have a sure foundation. Proverbs 10.25 puts it this way. When the storms of life come, the wicked are whirled away, but the godly have a lasting foundation. Oh God, my rock. Is he your rock today? Church, I'm telling you, this has messed with me. <laughs> because I, I feel like most often I have a pretty good faith. And then I read what David said. I'm like, man, I have so far to go. I want to be desperate for God. I want to, I want to be devoted to him. <laughs> And I want to be dependent upon him, oh God, my rock. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you please do that. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're like me. Pastor Jeff, I, I believe in Jesus. I've put my faith in him. I consider myself, you know, not pridefully speaking, but I've got my faith figured out pretty well. Not in a horrible spot, but man, this, this cut me. This cut me to the core. And I'm... I find myself, my face not producing that desperation like it probably should be. My face maybe not producing that devotion. My face not producing that dependence. I've kind of faltered in one of those areas. If that's you today, I just want to raise your hand, acknowledge that. Yep, that's me. I'm all about that right now. Yeah, lots and lots and lots and lots of hands. God, right now in Jesus' name, Lord, like you've done for me, would you do for all of us in the room? Would you just comfort us? Lord, you're not angry at us. You're, you're calling us, you're, you're, you're convicting us, you're moving us to you. So Lord, right now, move us closer to you. Lord, help me be desperate for you. Help me be devoted to you. Help me be dependent upon you and nothing else. Oh God, my rock. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, that was good, but I'm all the way back at that first part of faith you mentioned way back at the beginning of this message before you yelled at me for 35 minutes. I'm like there, and I, I have not even experienced the faith that forgives yet. So my response is, why not today? Why not today? So if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus to be forgiver of your sins, savior of your soul, he's talking to some of you right now. And he's waiting for you to respond. He's not angry with you. He's allowing you to come into his presence, which is amazing. It's part of his grace. So if you're feeling that tug on your heart to, for the first time, put your faith in Jesus, I just want you to say this prayer with me. Say it silently, just in your heart to God. Let's just pray this together. Father in heaven, believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me in my place. He rose from the dead. He's coming back again one day. 
and I'm putting my faith in you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. So I confess everything I've done. Wash me clean, make me new, come into my heart. Change me, God. Make me desperate for you. I want to be devoted to you and dependent upon you. But it starts here with my faith, and so I put my faith in you. I turn from my old life, I'll follow you in my new life. Thanks for loving me. I don't understand it, but I receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you prayed that prayer to ask Jesus into your heart, I'm gonna ask you to do something bold, but it's a safe place to do it. I want you to just slip up your hand, leave it up, say, yep, that's me. I just asked Jesus into my heart. Anybody here say that? Raise your hand right here. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Anybody else? Awesome, awesome. Praise God. Yeah, amen, amen. Listen, if you put your faith in Jesus, I say it every time, it's the best decision you'll ever make. It's the hardest one you'll ever live. And you need help. I need help. And you do too. And so we actually wrote a devotional for you called 21. And it will get you reading the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's 21 chapters long, one chapter a day, and some thoughts to go along with it of what in the world just happened when I put my faith in Jesus. If you want one of those, ask for one at guest services or the Next Steps wall. We'll get you one. Also, if you would be so kind to mark on your connection card that you asked Jesus into your heart, I greatly appreciate that. I promise you we're not going to do anything weird. We just want to, to be with you in this and celebrate with you and offer you some tools. So if you do that, that would be awesome as well. Church, I'm excited for this series. I, I hope that this message was applicable to you. I'm doing my best to bring back Israel with me and put it into our context. And I believe every week we're going to be challenged on some things that I experienced firsthand and now taking scripture and coming to life. Next Sunday, uh, I'm going to be preaching on uh, baptism. And I'm going to share with you my experience of being rebaptized in the Jordan River, the same river that Jesus was baptized in. Unbelievable again. And I think we're all going to be really encouraged uh, by that next Sunday. So let me pray for you. I love you guys. Let me pray for you. God, you're so good. Thanks for the life you brought today into this place. Lord, people experience life today. And I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you even... This is a personal thing, God, but Lord, you gave me words to say that I never planned on saying. And Lord, it blows me away that you think so much of us that you'll literally speak life into a room. Boggles my mind. God, we want to be desperate for you and devoted to you and dependent upon you. Help us, Lord, to have that same faith that David had. It doesn't change our circumstances, but it changes our soul. Help us have that, God. We love you. Give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.